Hello, and welcome to Sight Unseen, a podcast run by the Tarleton State University Centre for Educational Excellence. Make sure you follow us on our social medias, all of which you can find down below. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Sight Unseen. Today is very special because it has our first episode featuring a special guest. Today's special guest is Dr. Bailey Sawyer, Director of Nutrition and Science and an Assistant Professor here at Dalton, working in the Medical Laboratory Sciences, Public Health and Nutrition Science Department. We are so excited to have you here, Dr. Sawyer. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. I'm going to hand over to Dr. Pennington to get us underway. Bailey, you were just telling me that you actually cut your teeth as an academic in kinesiology. What degree did you get? Uh, Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology, but it was an emphasis on exercise science. I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. Okay, and yeah. where'd you get your degrees? Uh, so I started at California Baptist University. Um, I ran... Is that north-south California? It's an hour east of Riverside. Um, sorry, hour east of LA. It's in Riverside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd never gone out there, and I was like, Cali girl, right? I'm from <laughs> West Texas. Everything's dirt. Um, so I wanted to be strength and conditioning coach. My mom's a coach. I was a cross-country runner. So I ran cross-country and track. Um, I'm not like a normal, like, you're not a cross-country runner. Because, I mean, I don't, like, necessarily look the part. More like a mesomorph. Yeah, yeah. We're talking kinesiology. That's exactly what it is. Um, and then, so I went to Baylor. That's where I did my internship. I graduated at 20. Do not recommend. Um, graduated at 20. So I brought in enough credits, and they were like, cool, you can graduate. So I pieced out. Um, I was going to stay in my master's. Different podcast for another day. My coach got fired my sophomore year of college. So they were like, we're going to take your scholarship away, right? So started at Baylor. Um, Baylor's culture when I was there, it was completely opposite of California Baptist. Uh, but I was a strength coach there. And all the women I met were very typical D1 strength coaches. And I was, oh, we're working like 80-hour weeks, like constant bags under their eyes. And I was like, I don't want this. So I met a sports dietitian, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool, because if I like get sick of sports, then I can do other things with nutrition. Um, so I changed my master's program. I had no idea what it took to become a dietitian, but my advisor was pretty much was like, yeah, let's do it. And their program was brand new. They only had two master's students when I started. Um, so, and I kind of had to like go in and do some like post-bag classes, which is pretty normal with nutrition, because um, we have to do all the chemistries, organic chem, biochem, microbiology, um, different than kinesiology. They're like, yeah, here's all your exercise science classes, but it's not like chemistry based, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so I worked, actually stayed on with the strength and conditioning side. We did nutrition for Baylor for, like I was there when we won the big 12 championship with coach Bryles. Um, so I was there, started in 2012, graduated in 2014. I stayed until 2016, um, and then started my dietetic internship in 2016. So. Okay. So you have what I would categorize as a ton of applied and clinical experience out in the profession. When we, uh, Andy and I have, have worked with you and we, we know you and we've gotten to know you. I did not realize, however, how extensive your background was in kinesiology until this moment. Um, one of the efforts that we've made is try to make this podcast more interdisciplinary and talk about different elements uh, because Andy and I, of course, are kinesiologists, but you too have a background in kinesiology. So to be interesting, now that you teach and you do research in another discipline, slightly outside of what we do in kinesiology, to talk about uh, your experiences. Because our hope is that our conversations that we have for the listeners can be broad and inclusive. And, and hopefully there's some, even though we do some highly specialized research and teaching our content area, 
uh, they can maybe observe elements that are transferable to them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that you offer that lens because I personally have only been in kinesiology from start to finish. Right. Andy is a doctorate in educational leadership. So he's outside the discipline. And then you, of course, have been a few places as well. For sure. So at what point did you identify that you had the skills or the desire to be an academic? Because when you're a clinician mm -hmm. or a, a practitioner of your, of your field, it's very, very applied. It's not necessarily, I wouldn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not necessarily research-oriented, not academic writing. Mm -hmm. you know, it's different, right? So yeah. could you just describe your experiences with that? Um, so I, I've always thought about getting my PhD. It wasn't like a super long-term goal. Like it wasn't really like structured. Um, really becoming a dietitian takes so much that I was like, I just need to become a dietitian. Um, we have to do a thousand clinical hours mm -hmm, plus all of our coursework. Does that, what is a thousand hours? Is that two years? Um, it ends up being about nine months, um, because you're pretty much full time. So you're giving a lot, you know, you're giving a lot of time, but we have to do community nutrition, food service, and medical nutrition therapy. Um, the difficult part, because there is so much to those spheres, that, I mean, so our board exam, you're calculating if someone is low in magnesium, and then the next question is, how many employees do you need for a food service operation? So lots of variables, um, lots of spread, I guess, in our profession, which isn't a bad thing, but it's just a lot to take on. Um, so my first job, actually, I was a school dietitian for the whole school district, um, planned meals, did education, still kind of kept my foot in the door with athletics, which was really fun. Um, did you have to work with, like, state and area legislation, political leaders in order to enact what your vision was for success in that role? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was that frustrating? Um, it's interesting, especially because people think that like childhood obesity is such a hot topic and always like nutrition gets picked on, right? All the time. Um, and so a lot of the push is school lunches, the breakfast lunch, because those are free or reduced for most of the communities that we're serving. So it gets, we get a lot of pushback, but they're so restricted. Uh, I mean, we have to, I have to calculate vegetables, fruit that they get per week for a whole menu cycle. Um, their grains have to be specific. Their, all the nutrients, their salt, everything has to be really specific. So um, it is really restrictive, but I mean, there's definitely a lot of room for education there. Um, and I always liked the aspect of educating with nutrition. So I did that for a year and then applied. Um, there were some personal things too, um, of why I like picked the farthest place away from Texas and I found it. It's North Dakota. Um, so, so did you, did you know that you were going to have to to work with the politicians and the policy that's associated with, with, with dietetics at that school level. Oh yeah, for sure. So you learned some of that going through your master's yeah, degree. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, um, for master's degree, but plus like, so my, part of my internship, I was at a school district. So similar to you any other internship, I was really familiar with it. We have to know all those laws, like for a board exam. Um, so I'm super familiar with it, which doesn't really help if someone wants to argue with me because I'm like, mm, hold up. <laughs> mm. um, but I mean, that's part of the longer I've been in education, the more I like that education piece. I actually didn't really fall in love with research until I started my PhD. So well, I, I definitely want to get into your research. But sure. uh, before that, you mentioned correcting people when they're wrong. Mm -hmm. I would assume that people 
on the outside assume that school lunches are unhealthy. You're nodding your head yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. But in reality, they are healthy. Oh, extremely healthy. They did like a case study on this lunch gal. Um, she was a server. And she decided that she was going to do start to finish. She was going to eat the kids' lunches um, and just like keep her normal activity. And she lost 20 pounds like in three months. So the school lunches put yeah. her at a caloric deficit. And mm -hmm. like you said, they're pretty meticulous in terms of right. measuring out grams of uh, macronutrients and mm -hmm. she adjusted she adjusted them to her no she just yeah. ate the lunches and the breakfast okay so she didn't adjust them to like her weight no, or no. anything like that she just ate them she just ate breakfast lunch and to so some depends on the school district whether or not you can get it's called the dinner program um but i think she just did because so the needs the school nutrition for our entire usd programming they're supposed to meet two-thirds of your caloric needs for the day um, where people get really confused is, so they take like the average 9th to 12th grader, the average 6th to 8th grader, um, and a lot of coaches, athletic trainers push back, especially in the school district where we're at, right? Highly athletic based. And like, if we go down the street or up the street to Dallas, we're going to meet a very different community base, which might be interactive and creative arts. Maybe they're banned. Well, they're not as physically active as, and so it's like, Educating on that piece, like, while, yes, we are not meeting the needs of a football player, we can figure out other ways. So it would be useful to, before, and prescribe, probably isn't the right word, prescribing a school lunch, to first get your finger on the pulse of that school system, the physical activity level, how much extracurriculars and movement opportunity the average student has there, and then make your lunch and the caloric intake of that lunch based upon physical activity. Mm -hmm. Not a uh, one-size-fits-all school lunch. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but I mean, there's variables to that too. Like that's, our recommendations are always based on the average healthy adult. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, that's kind of where people that love nutrition and they're like, Oh, we get that. And I'm like, but there's so much more because dietitians, I know how to eat for my body, but dietitians are taught how to train everyone with health disparities, with type two diabetes, full metabolic syndrome with cardiovascular disease whether what age you are so it's like we're trained in on how to work with all populations rather than like the healthy average um and then that's where you kind of get those like individualized areas so well uh your research is something that you just mentioned uh go ahead and give us what your area focuses in your research the objective of your research what you look at mm -hmm. um it it changes and molds. <laughs> mm -hmm. Most most recently and probably the most personal part of my research where it's just pretty much me with like my advisor from NDSU working on. Um, and now I'm actually working with another colleague is type 1 diabetes. Um, my dad has type 1 diabetes. He's had it since he was 11. Um, and then my cousin, his nephew, has type 1 diabetes and he was diagnosed at 18. Um, they... In my dissertation, I decided to really focus on emerging adults. Um, 18 to 30, that age group is ones... I mean... We work in academics with young adults, so we see their risky behaviors. We see all the decisions they're making, how much stress that takes. Mm -hmm. But when you're adding a layer of an autoimmune disease where you're thinking about it, um, I think the average times that an individual with type 1 diabetes thinks about their diabetes is every four minutes, oh, which, yes, it's wild. And so I like the emerging adults population, not because it's like I'm picking on them, but my dad had to move home when he was in college. He only lived an hour and a half away, but just... He needed extra help with his type 1 diabetes. My cousin stayed close to home. Um, a lot of these individuals live at their home base longer. 
and have better type 1 diabetes as far as like their management, but they lack some of that independence and like the social abilities that emerging adults who don't have type 1 have. Um, so the quick quick of it, I did a quick survey, got a lot of great data, um, and then I actually did a mixed method, so I did a qualitative piece as well, um, wrote a manuscript, which hopefully it was reviewed. So hopefully that will get published. Um, but I'm kind of, there were so many gaps that I found, which was really great. Um, type 1 diabetes individuals are also super high risk for eating disorders, and there's a really good survey on that coded it's really easy uh, if you score over 20 then we need to make sure you have the resources to prevent your eating disorder if it was not already diagnosed um but i mean if you think about is, is that just self-reported data um yes it yeah. was but the screeners that i chose are i mean they were valid, valid valid reliable yeah. and um there's actually in diabetes institute in harvard um which is funny i'm like in north dakota like hello harvard <laughs> can i borrow this survey and they like emailed me back super fast it was like geek moment um so yeah all self-reported the qualitative data i mean it was like super thick amazing um so that's why i wanted to write that manuscript first and then so now Based off of that, I'm starting to like fill in a lot of those gaps, um, or try to. So, so as far, go ahead, go ahead, Tom. Sorry, Andy. No, uh, as far as the research paradigms go, uh, do you think that you practice more, or do you prefer the qualitative or quantitative approaches? I like both of them. I never would have thought that I would have liked qualitative, which is funny. Like I, but I like getting to know people and like them having a story, like going to a conference and introducing myself 50 times was really exhausting to me. But like these deep conversations, that's what qualitative research is, where people like get to tell the story. And I did a semi-structured. Um, so it was definitely like gave a lot of freedom and it molded and changed, which was super nice and saw a lot of themes. Uh, we separated them into two categories, barriers and strategies. So um, I feel this way with a lot of, so type one diabetes is put in a disability. And I feel this way with a lot of disability research is they like to harp on like look how tough their life is their life is so hard and it's like but there's also really great things that they're better than anyone else like they rocked COVID like everybody else was stressed out they were like we have telehealth now I mean they really rocked it granted it wasn't probably like glitters and rainbows but they were tough and I think that's really important to like show that they are an amazing group of individuals that need a voice um so I like both of them like I could do mixed methods forever but mm. Well, that's, that's interesting because Colin and I kind of have different perspectives. Colin loves the qualitative, mm. and I love the quantitative. And as, as we've had conversations over the year with this podcast, I've become more interested in the qualitative piece. And um, I don't know, I can't speak for Colin, but I, you've probably already had quite a bit of an interest in quantitative. Well, with sure. some of your previous works, you know, within... Yeah, well, well as a student, as a master's student, as yeah. a doc student, you get trained and, and maybe trained isn't even the right word in fact i've got a different philosophical point of view on the type of language that we use for our educational experiences but i'll use the word trained for now i was trained in quantitative as a grad student and um the qualitative approaches and i think you just expressed this paint a bit of an image they add a little depth and detail and they in my mind they make meaning of the numbers behind the quantitative right. studies but but each one of those paradigms can inform the other and when you put it together in a mixed method approach mm -hmm. i think you've got a more complete view of the phenomenon you're observing for sure and i feel like especially some of the research we've done with, with rodeo of recent which actually we can talk about ours here in a little bit that we're getting ready to start um it, the quantitative 
data that we've collected, it's so much easier to talk about since we have that qualitative piece of it now, which I, I've always thought to myself, well, I did the methods, uh, I did the results. Do I really need to say anything else at this point? But the, the qualitative aspect of it really lends itself to, to making that conclusion and that discussion more enriched. Uh, I'll say this about qualitative work or interpretive work. Uh, when done properly, it, it enriches a study, but when done improperly, it's messy. And it's mm -hmm. very, very complicated. It's very, very difficult to interpret in a way that makes meaning and clarifies what your research questions were and what you actually observed. So I think that there's a bit of an art to it, just like teaching can be artistic. Right. And teaching can also be very deliberate decisions in teaching mechanics. So qualitative inquiry can be uh, both an art with a very uh, lockstep order to ensure rigor and trustworthiness. So it's a skill too. In addition to being an art, it's a skill just like teaching. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so my question earlier was you had, you work with, whenever it comes to research, you work with individuals that are self-reporting mm -hmm. information. We had a conversation about this a while back. Can you talk about what percentage you expect people to lie about their mm -hmm. their their, their uh, dietary habits? Yeah. It, can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, for whenever sure. Whenever it comes to research for that. Because um, this, was, this was astounding to me whenever I heard the, the percentage. I, I, was, I was blown away that people are going to lie that Oh, much. yeah. It's expected. It's 25%. But, I mean, that's not... If you think about it, though... If you're just eating, going about your day, like, a little less mindful, which is hard for us because, like, we're scientists, we care about our body, but, like, you know, Joe off the street. So it's not necessarily intent to lie. It's just not, it's just inaccurate. I wouldn't even call it that because I, when people are watched, right, like, if we put kids in a room and we knew they were going to misbehave, but we weren't going to be like, oh, we're watching you, right? And we just, like, let them play. And, like, of course they're going to, like, try to fight with each other and mm -hmm. figure out boundaries, right? But if we were like, hey, we're going to let you stay right here, but we're going to watch you outside of a window, of course they're going to act better. Right. Um, and so it's not necessarily that I am actually lying. It's that, oh, I actually didn't think about the donut that I had in the coffee break. Or, oh, I didn't think about the five cups of coffee I've had today, right? So it's like you're a little more mindful yeah, of that Yeah, the, the presence of mind that you are a subject or a participant in yes, a study affects yes. your behavior. And, right. Yeah. It, it was just astounding to me whenever I heard that. That's a big number. It, yeah, it is because we, well, at least within exercise science, we try to control for everything. And to, to not be able to control for 25% mm -hmm. of your oh, yeah. experiment just sounds insane. But I yeah. guess that's just part of the game, right? You just have to report possible limitations and yeah. people in your field are aware of that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not, you're yeah. constantly having to tell the journals and the reviewers about your 25% error potential. It's just right. understood. It comes with a dinner. Forgive yeah, yeah, the yeah. pun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, See what you did there. <laughs> no, I know. Well, that, I mean, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But that's also a part of when people try to harp on a specific macronutrient or carbohydrates are bad for you or gluten is bad for you or sugar is bad for you. We're more than just, I mean, we're more than just one facet. That's like also saying like, I'm so stressed. I don't know why I'm so hungry, right? Like we're more than like just one facet because if we were, everyone would lose weight. Everyone would be super fit. We would have no mental health concerns. I mean, we'd just be like a little box robot. Um, and so, I mean, that's, 
that's part of it. Unless we all locked each other in a room, which, I mean, you can do, but you're also not getting, like, that life aspect of nutrition, right? You're not that's, getting the... That's a very You lose point. ecological validity. Yeah, that's you do. That's a very good point, because I, I get that a lot from, from right, practitioners within the strength conditioning field of, well, sure, this information's great, but you're not applying this in an actual strength conditioning session. Mm -hmm. How well is this actually going to work whenever I try to plug it into my program and facilitate it. Right. Well, that's, that's a great, that's a great point, And you sir. fold in to the equation, uh, the client or the patient's personality, points mm -hmm. of view, level of stress, everything, mm -hmm. uh, the money that they allocate towards feeding themselves. Some people are on budget. So yeah, to, to make it more ecologically valid, you lose control, mm -hmm. but, uh, the results have more meaning. For sure. Oh, for sure. But and I mean, in the same breath, unless it is like a do or die situation of your nutrition and I'm just watching and observing, which most of it is, there's really no reason, like even in life, to be so restricted and so controlled. That is where you're, I mean, because I'm a big quality of life, I'm a big psychosocial, I never thought of myself that way, but the more research I do and the more programs that I'm trying to promote, even like with the rodeo athletes, well, we can get into that in any athletic aspect. The more control, the more quality of life I feel like you take away because you aren't allowing yourself to enjoy those things in a balanced aspect. Well, I'm going to get a cookie tonight on my way home because you it. talked me into it, basically. Do it. I definitely want to talk about y'all's rodeo study because I'm interested in this. Uh, but before I do that, I am curious, what is your teaching load here? Uh, do you teach undergrad, grad classes? Mm -hmm. In your content area? Yeah, right now, um, so our bachelor's program just semi just started. We had our first graduate, um, and we have two concentrations, but our first graduate graduate was from our food and nutrition concentration in the fall. Um, our other concentration, which as my bread and butter essentially is dietetics, um, there's great jobs in both. Dietetics has that heavier science, um, but I encourage all students to just go for it, do it, you know, get all the tutoring. Um, but she, when my one student who is a female, um, did apply to an internship similar to what I did, um, we are actually in between stages with dietetics. So. Right now, you do not have a have, have to have a master's degree to take our board exam. By 2024, you will. Mm. Um, so right now, I'm only teaching undergraduate courses. One of those is probably my biggest face-to-face -face course is with the pre-nursing students, which also is nutrition and some public health. Um, but we will have a master's program starting in fall of 23. Um, I have never walked through the accreditation process. I was and about to ask if, yes. if, if there was an accreditation process for your undergraduate degree or mm -hmm. is there going to be obviously a new one for your master's yeah. degree? Yeah, so we, we did both. Um, they're going away from the accreditation with our undergraduate because they're acquiring the master's degree. Um, so they want that focus to be a little heavier for master's. Dietitians are not always the best at being vocal. Um, so good example in the hospital, we're probably the least paid right now because we are not funded through insurance. Occupational therapy, physical therapy, nurses, doctors, they're all insurance supported. Um, where we are trying to come in and, I mean, I literally was on an advocacy session like in February with our senators um, to try and push that we need medical nutrition therapy to be coded for insurance. It's getting better um, and it hopefully will continue to move, but that's why they're moving towards that master's degree route. Hey, this is just an observation I've had. Um, it seems like it is trendy in the present day to be healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
fit in, and I'm sure for aesthetic reasons that are less wholesome than just general holistic health, uh, probably drive this. But what are your what are your thoughts on society's viewpoint of health? Because mm-hmm. you are you're obviously in a very hard science at a chemical molecular level right. type of uh, field of study, but also you've introduced the psychosocial component as well, mm-hmm. the soft science, the metaphysical. So as all of these interact with one another and the output is a society's point of view on health, what do you think American society is right now in terms of moving more healthy or less healthy? Be careful. <laughs> I, that, that's definitely like a twofold answer. I feel like everything in nutrition is a twofold answer, right? It's like the, the chicken or the egg. So do I feel like America is more aware of health? Yes. Do I think it's appropriate? No. Because anytime I see, and I was talking to my, it's HECO 1322, it was my pre-nursing health class with mostly freshmen and sophomores, those kind of things. Um, anytime you are on social media or watching Netflix, it is always new supplement, new diet, overly diet cultures, like the dietitian, like biggest pet peeve. I'm sick of the diet culture. I really am. Because instead of just being normal, like literally being normal, because anytime someone's like, well, what about injections? What about this? What about that? And I'm like, be normal. Eat vegetables, eat protein. I'll tell you the portions you need. Exercise three to five times a week at moderate to vigorous level, 45 minutes each time. Regardless of what it is, just do it. And you will meet all of those health needs, but like be normal. You don't have to have your fast food drive through of diet. That's not one, it's not appropriate, but that's not sustainable. So the it's the quick fix that everyone. Oh, for sure, everyone. the quick fix, and people also don't understand. There's a very fine line with the diet culture between, okay, I'm overweight or I'm obese, which also we could get into as a whole different podcast. I mean, I've already go, I've already with medical doctors about this because, and not that it's like hair flip. I'm a dietitian. I have taken over sixty hours, mostly in graduate work of nutrition. Medical doctor takes one course during their med time. I mean, they do. They don't have enough time, right? And that is why dietitians fill those gaps, which all therapies in the hospital are supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a fine line between you are overweight, you are obese, and we're we're pushing you to our, towards an eating disorder, which I think is very unfair. Yeah, from my point of view, it looks like there's a trade-off where in the pursuit of physical health and aesthetic beauty Mm -hmm. there is a loss of (laughs) holistic wellness Mm -hmm. uh, emotional health and it's it's you're giving up one for the other Mm -hmm. and um physical health can be extremely important is extremely important the four of us in this room agree physical health is important but not the cost of your emotional health your mental wellness right and on top of that do you feel with with the age of information that we're in Mm -hmm. we have made ourselves Obviously more aware of nutrition, but have we made ourselves less healthy because we're focused so much on our, our daily intake? Like you talked about, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, being restrictive in your diet and having, you know, those those issues with, with focusing on food 24-7 or every four minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like how unhealthy have we become in learning so much mm-hmm. information about right. this? Well, and I think it's... The comparison, too, because um, I have 
I have people that like, hey, I need you, you know, I need advice, this and that. And they do it for, like, I have a friend, he's a blue collar worker. He was, he has a very weird job. He's not at home. He works, I was actually using his example and he wouldn't mind. I won't share his name, obviously, but um, he has a really weird schedule. He's not at home. His family's in Arkansas. He's like in Montana right now. He moves every couple months. Um, and he noticed some trends and he was like, you know what? I would like to get healthier. Okay. He has a personality that is like, he's going to do something. It's going to be 200%. And it's like, there's a fine line for mm -hmm. sure. Right. There's a fine line between like, man, I feel good. I'm exercising. So he has lost a good amount of weight. He is healthier. I'm like, are you stronger? All those things messaged me yesterday and goes, I think I'm just going to jump in head, head on and be more, more strict about my macronutrients and be more strict about my, um, he's like starting to lift and all those things. And I was like, what are you gaining from what you're, what are you doing differently? You've lost a good amount of weight. You're on a really good track. You seem like you're a lot happy. You're happy with your progress. What more are you gaining by being more strict? Because a lot of people like, I love the holidays of like, well, I just, I'm going to eat this, but then I'm just going to, after January hits, I'm just going to go to the gym. And I'm like, what's wrong with enjoying holiday? Like, what is wrong with enjoying mm -hmm. your holiday? What's wrong with being a human? One, what's wrong with gaining 10 pounds? What is wrong with that? You have a little more in your gut. What's wrong with that? I mean, really, I have a colleague, she has type 1 diabetes, and we've worked on some projects together. And she has really pushed me to be like, what is wrong with being overweight and that's when we're you know because I'm a dietitian so I'm like looking at blood values I'm looking at blood mm -hmm. pressure I'm looking at that waist size what is wrong if they're genetically going to be that size that's likes on social media oh yes 100% I've not in a rude way but I have been very a little more vocal without like I work at Tarleton but like I have been vocal on the bikini shot look at these supplements that I'm taking that triggers me and I have not had any issue eating for a very long time. And I'm like, what what you're doing by portraying your body as progress for a supplement does not make me feel comfortable. And how does how is that gonna make anyone feel uncomfortable if they don't feel good in their body? So and that's I think where like physical yeah. activity comes in and that mental health aspect comes in because you're outside or you're ac active, you're getting a lot of those stress hormones to reduce. So it's like it's a twofold aspect, but it's like what is what is wrong with living life? Yeah, right. and, and that's, I think, that the eating disorder that we, we've discussed previously is it's it's not just your standard, you know, um, bulimia or, mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. It's it's being, you know, super um, cognizant of everything that you're mm -hmm. putting in your body. Yeah. And what's that particular eating disorder? Orthorexia. Orthorexia. Mm -hmm. so. so it's just like the, you're super, super overly healthy. You're working out. Every single day. If you miss a day, uh-uh. Like, I mean, yeah. you it's the overly focused, the overly Obsessive. active. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you see, like Adam said a second ago, that's what's portrayed as the goal mm -hmm. within today's society. Yeah. You get on Instagram and you click that little search button. Mm -hmm. If you like anything that involves fitness, you're going to get pages and pages of people that are at like 6% body fat. Yeah. Well, and, and body, that bodies that it's more. like is one that attainable for your genetics, right? That is, we, I've always educate, and for, regardless if it's an education or if it's one-on-one -on -one with a client, what do your parents look like, right? Like, I am never going to be the super petite gal. My mom's Czech, my dad's English, Irish. I'm never going to be a super petite gal. Even when I was in high school and I was on the, you know, as a high school size for a kid, but also like, 
I'm a 30 year old woman. I don't want to look like I'm 16. Mm. But it's like, that's the, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about this because we were talking about that in class, in class today is like the standards of beauty, the diet culture is just, it's over the top, but there's so much money in it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's it's so, a multi-billion dollar so industry. much money in it. Yeah. I, one of the messages I emphasize in my adapted physical education classes, uh, if the body is doing, if the, if the body is doing what it can get out of life, then it's working. If your body can love its parents and its kids and do what brings you joy and participate in something that is social and brings you in touch with your family, your community, your friends, then your body's working. Mm-hmm. As long as your body's doing that, it works. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. And there's definitely a delicate balance. Um, but especially even the food we eat and our body size that's like two things that I look at when I'm doing a nutrition assessment, right? I'm looking at blood values. I'm looking at blood pressure. I'm looking at, we do a call, it's called a physical assessment. I'm looking at your physical attributes on, are you holding muscle mass? Are you holding fat mass correctly? Um, so it's like even the BMI, which we could, oh, another podcast yeah. for another day, right? But people get so mad about the BMI. And I'm like, the BMI was designed for my individuals that are under 18.5, they're underweight, I can find them really fast out of 600 people, right? Mm-hmm. My, quick identification for, sure. and for mass, mass yes. area population. It makes sense. As a dietitian, because people get confused, like we're very different than nurses, and this is why I'm so glad that we get to teach those pre-nursing students, because there are eyes and ears. I can't go and see every student. I mean, every student. I can't go and see every single patient. There's only five dietitians at big, big hospitals, right? Even here in Stephenville, yeah, I mean, there's not that many. And so the nurses do screenings, our doctors do screenings. There's definitely ways that things are falling through the cracks, but that's where a lot of our like reliable screening tools are coming in um, because they work so well and we could screen so quickly that it makes mm-hmm. sense. So when people, I'll use doctors as an example. Obviously, I am not a medical doctor. Medical doctors do the correct thing. But nutrition, they harp on individuals that are obese a lot, right? Um, so that's why I go through, and I'm a, outside of type 1 diabetes, I also do some metabolic research with metabolic syndrome. Um, super easy to calculate, super easy to look at. Um, but even out of our metabolic syndrome, which is blood glucose, triglycerides, our HDL values, blood pressure, and triglycerides, and waste, out of those five measurements, they only have to have three. So even if they have one, which is waist size, everything else is clear. It's like, okay, start exercising more, right? Mm -hmm. Like we work on some assessments that are attainable. And you also have to think about with personal choice, there are people that have, see, they're dying of end-stage renal disease and they do not want to change. So a lot of that is that behavior change. Yeah, the transfer the medical model behavior change. Yes, yes. And where they are along that phase. Oh, for sure. And it's, if you are not wanting to change, if you're not wanting to listen to my education, then we can definitely move on. Yeah, readiness matters in all of these disciplines. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know we focus a lot on the physical and, and physical health component during this conversation, but uh, readiness is a function of, of all of these academic fields and disciplines and research in general. Right. And it's hard to measure that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's... Uh, it's it's a variable. It's hard to control as well. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that earlier. Right. But there's definitely nothing wrong with someone telling you no and just living. I mean, just living their life and just seeing what happens. I mean, they have, everyone has a right to do that. And probably when I was like first starting to become a dietitian, I was like, how could they? And now I'm like, okay, you know, live your life. 
and it's a hard it's like a hard pill to swallow but at the same time it's like is there really anything wrong with them choosing to not change they know the consequences they've been in and out of the hospital that's what they want to continue to do you know by it stinks for their family it stinks for their caregivers it stinks for them but I mean that's kind of where like that quality of life comes into play not like being I'm very much like I don't need to like talk death to you because you have type 2 diabetes like you know that people know what's going on with their life but I don't think it's like a do or die so mm -hmm. thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Sights Unseen be sure to follow us again on social media that way you can stay up to date with future episodes and if you're a faculty member here at Tarleton and you would love to be on an episode we'd love to have you please get in contact with us and we look forward to hearing from you soon thank you again so much for listening to this episode of Sight Unseen